Fishbine Rabbit. It's Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbine, community-based practicing obstetrician, currently still in Southern California. <laughs> Don't know how much longer. Uh, and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm here this time, as usual. What do you mean? Oh, because last time. Because I, I missed here. you last time. Aww. You were here. I had to do a podcast all by myself. I know. Uh, um, even though you did tune in. You did have a baby, by the way. Well, let me finish, by the way. <laughs> I'm here with my co-host, the Blisterious One, Bliss Young. Welcome. Thank you. We're happy to be back with all of you for podcast number 192. And you can find us, well, you've already found us, those of you who are watching right now. We're so and, glad you're here. And if you want to find us later on, you can find us on drstreetspodcast.com. We'll also be on your uh, uh, smartphone podcast app. And, uh, and then you can also find us at Dr. Stu's Podcast Facebook page. And also, well, yours disappears, right? On your Instagram page. Sometimes I, I choose and I pick and choose. Okay. And you can write me at askdrstu at gmail.com. And my website is birthinginstincts.com and bliss is birthingbliss.com and also the innate journey, which is my um, childbirth education and um, now birth worker. And if people want to find that, they can just go to birthingbliss.com and there'll be a, yep. a, a panel or a, a banner. Yep. Okay. Because I have you on my resource page now as childbirth education. Thank you. I, I updated it. Thank you. Well, I, I, I was tired of a lot of my links going to Chinese porn. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I want to say one more thing in the intro. Um, also, if you're listening to the podcast, you can see us live on Wednesdays, every Wednesday, hopefully, unless there's a birth, at 10 a.m. Oh, yeah. On Facebook or on my Instagram. So um, if you want to see us talking and be able to ask questions and interact with us, um, join us live. Yeah, there is no better media right now to get information than podcasts. Podcasts are the best source of information. You don't have a 30 second sound bite. You don't have a two minute window on a, on a TV show. You, you know, you, we can talk, we can go dig deep into the weeds mm -hmm. on topics. Mm -hmm. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. Maybe one day we'll talk about the podcast that we listen to. One so. of my girlfriends just did a whole thing about her favorite podcast. That would be fun. Let's do that. Yeah, I'm sure yours and mine are not the same. No, but that's okay. That's part of <laughs> yeah. what people like about it. I know. I know. It's great. Okay, so um, you were at a birth last week. You want to tell us a little bit about I it? I was at a birth last week. We missed week. you. But... Um, yeah, my client uh, had moved to San Diego. So I had to drive to San Diego, which gave me memories of all of the births I've done with you in San Diego. And I drove to school in Najoni in, in um California is down in San Diego. So every Friday I would drive yeah. to San Diego for class. And you know what? I never missed a birth. In the three years that I went to school in San Diego, I never missed one birth. That's pretty amazing. But yeah. anyways, yeah. Um, so it was kind of reminiscent driving down And you never there. skipped class either? You I skipped class sometimes when I thought. Okay. But I never like missed a birth because I was down there. <clears throat> so she had chosen me as her monitorice last birth mm -hmm. and was kind of on the fence about whether or not she wanted to stay home. Um, family wasn't supportive, but then she ended up having bleeding in labor um, enough that I thought there was an issue and gave them counseling. And we went in to um, be with Dr. Shavira, who wasn't able to be there, but we were at California Hospital. So I thought with the midwives, it would be awesome. It was not awesome. 
Uh, it ended up being a very traumatic uh, C-section. Um, the oh. the resident took her back to do a vacuum in the OR and then said, we're putting her under, we're taking the baby out, and none of you can come in. Her husband was very upset. Needless to say, we were all pretty traumatized. Do you know why he made that decision? I think he planned on it. I think that's oh. why he went back for in the OR. Oh. I, I think that's what happened, but... Um, you know, so anyway, she got pregnant again and wasn't really sure what she wanted to do this time and did her research, thought about delivering at a birth center and came full circle because everyone kept saying, VBACs, go to Bliss, go to Bliss for VBACs. And she was like, I want to talk to you about coming and doing home birth. And so, um, we worked together and she moved to San Diego and when you were doing the podcast last Wednesday, she had a absolutely beautiful Water H back. What was the birth time? Do you remember? 1030. Wow. Yeah. Like, right like in, the in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> Cause I thought maybe I would, um, Instagram ask you to join me and we could kind of be on there together, but it just, there yeah. And then I even, I even said during the podcast, I said, uh, I wonder if we've had a baby yet. And I scrolled down and you, and you had, you, you got busy. <laughs> um, and Nikki Helms was my assistant. Who's a San Diego midwife mm -hmm. who's opening a birth center down there. So if anybody needs, um, wonderful, compassionate, loving care, you should check her out. She was, that was her first time being in the birth space together. We, we knew each other from school and, um, she was an absolute beautiful assistant and supportive person for my my client down there fantastic any other yeah. any other births no i don't I, have anybody I, until the 20th i've had no yeah i have nobody this month other than the twins that went last last time so. however yes i do have a few covid things happening i thought that was interesting oh all right so, so we can we can yeah I, I i've got a lot of stuff to get to but let's go wherever it takes us so okay so dara who's the one who's down in san diego her parents her mom was supposed to be the one supporting her toddler they got covid um, her dad was in the hospital and her mom wasn't able to be there to support her. So she had to come up with a plan B. Luckily, they hadn't seen each other in two weeks. So we didn't, none of us had to be affected with that. Um, my assistant, Kim, and her family all got sick. She's negative, but her husband is positive and her sisters are positive. Um, so she's in quarantine right now. Where do people get tested? Do they have to go to those car places and drive through? There's or? a lot of places. You can do free testing here if you look it up, but you can also go to um, urgent care um, and get them done there. So I've heard of some people being able to get their results in 20 minutes, but most people it's taking a couple so of So you can just walk into urgent care and say, I would like a COVID test. COVID test. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Um, and I don't know if they're still asking. No, they're not because you can get them anytime you want now. Um, and then, um, one of my clients who was 35 weeks, um, came down with COVID. Her son was at preschool with masks and all of that, but brought it home and the whole family got sick, including her mom who was here, um, supporting her for her delivery. So again, I feel very lucky that I hadn't seen her. Um, but you know, kind of feels very... Close well, it's everywhere. Everybody, you're, you're, everybody's right going to get it, all right, or or get immune to it somehow because that's just the nature of viruses. Yeah, but if I actually had been exposed, I would not necessarily be able to see my clients. Oh, I agree. That's going to a lot of issues. That's going to yeah. It's, yeah. And, but it's going to happen to almost all of us as practitioners. Yeah. At some point, yeah. we're going to get it. Yeah. Right. So Kim was really worried, and I said, you know, this is actually kind of cool because hopefully you're not your symptoms aren't 
intense and Gerald's aren't intense, her husband. And, um, and then you guys will hopefully be immune and then you won't have, all I know fear. Well, that's what you're know, walking around. That's I'm like, I'm like doing nothing to prevent myself from getting it. That's I, not and that's I something I want to hear right and, now. <laughs> and I can't, I can't seem to catch it. So I don't, I don't, well, no, I'm not like, well, last week when you weren't here, I, I even said we were talking about it on, I was talking to myself and I said, so if anybody knows people that are sick, let's have a, let's have a coronavirus party. I know. Right. You heard that. I know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'd just like to get it over with. And this is a good month to get it over with for me too. But not for me. Okay. So maybe we have to well, come up with well, a plan B. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to do it remotely. We might. Right. Yeah. And so I am doing a childbirth education class in person and I have everybody get tested before so that everybody could just feel comfortable to come for the class. Are they going to get tested each week when they come? No, I just asked them. We're, we're only doing one weekend. Oh, it's a weekend. Yeah. Got it. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, I feel instinctually like I'm, I want to be more cautious. I'm supposed to go on vacation and my sister who has asthma is supposed to come to visit and, and you know, I'm just feeling like I want to be a little more cautious. And here I am. And here you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a couple quick, couple quick, uh, notes. Um, Hannah, yes, my daughter was a Aztec for life. She was, went to San Diego state. So this is one of her t-shirts she got me. And, um, Erica, we are still working on deciding whether we're going to go to Zoom or not. Uh, we really don't exactly know. So that's, I, I get you, you're, you're one vote for, we've had a one or two people with negative comments about what was it? Zoom in China or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll figure it out, but nothing's going to change, um, until probably we will definitely let you know. We'll definitely give you lots of, warning. okay. I have some letters. Uh, this first one is from Ellen. Right. And she says, I am a midwife in Australia and I've been following you. We get a lot. I get a lot of stuff. I think when I look at my reach, my reach on the worldwide map. Ours. Well, yeah. the Yeah. Ours. Dr. Seuss podcast reach. Okay. Australia is a number two country. Mm -hmm. It is. I know. That's cool. Yeah. Maybe they'll invite us to come. They have invited us to come. And do a live. They have invited us to come. A real live. The problem is. You can't go? I know. Not yet, but it's going to happen. All right. I have a midwife in Australia. I've been following you for only a short while now. Just have to say well done. Thank you. Okay. Uh, it's rare to find an obstetrician like you in Australia. Your dedication toward women and their families is amazing. I previously saw you attend a twin home birth. I was speaking to an obstetrician who I work with in regards to a multiple pregnancy home birth. And obviously, it's rare to come across a woman who would birth at home with twins due to the risk of malpresentation of twin two. My question for you is, should I, any issues arise at a twin home birth? What is your role as an obstetrician? What are you able to do? Hopefully I hear back from you. Well, you are now, Ellen. So, <laughs> Ellen. Hopefully you're listening. Yeah. So, what is, well, malposition, see, here's the whole thing. The idea that malposition of twin two is even an issue, to me, just shows that people are not being taught the way I was taught. Well, yes. They're not. Mm -hmm. Because... My criteria for, for twin birthing at home is they need to make it to term, which is essentially about 35 and a half weeks with twins. Mm -hmm. And twin A needs to be in what I call a stable longitudinal lie, which means either it has to be head down or in a proper breech position. It can't be a transverse lie. It can't be a funic presentation, which is where the umbilical cord is presenting. It can't be, it's got to be a stable lie. And then I don't really care what twin B is. Now, people will say, well, what if twin B has a cord prolapse? What if twin B comes down with an arm or a leg or 
stays transverse. Well, then you go up and get it. And then people will say, well, how can you do that without an epidural? And you have conversations with the clients during their pregnancy about what it's like. And um, I've had to do, well, I would say quite a few uh, breech extractions um, on second twins in the home setting. And I have what I call my twins moms list, which I can give to any woman with twins who wants to contact other moms who've been through the same situation, who've had a home birth with twins, and they can ask them those sorts of questions. But I, you know, I carry vacuum, I carry forceps, but generally you don't need those sorts of things with a second twin because worst case scenario, that twin's in trouble or the heart rate goes down or it's something falls out like a leg or the umbilical cord, you just reach up and you can go get it if you know what you're doing. So I can do any of that. And I think that people are so worried about doing it without anesthesia. Um, but if you want a home birth, you you know, that's the trade-off you get. Yeah. What were you going to say? So two things. One is twins and breeches are a variation of normal. We've been delivering twins and breeches um, for a long time. So I think that's the thing to remember as well. This is not something new. This is something that we've been doing for a very long time. So I like that you have special skills that you can utilize and teach. Um, the other thing I wanted you to kind of just extrapolate on a little bit is why 35 and a half weeks and what would, you know, like what is the criteria of making that decision if 37 weeks is when we believe that the lungs have matured? Well, that's actually not the case. And with twins, lungs mature a little bit earlier, but but um how do we know that oh just just there's lots of data on that. Mm. yeah um they because they tend to come earlier they tend to get ready earlier mm -hmm. it's like a, just the body knows the, the babies know or yeah. something yeah they cool. know mm -hmm. but um two things first of all the baby's lungs are probably mature at 35 or 36 weeks even in singletons all right most of the most they might have is some transient kidney or something like mm -hmm. that but but the 37 week rule here in California isn't based on necessarily any some sort of science. I know that. I'm just. <laughs> so at 30, by 35 and a half weeks, why not 36 weeks? Why not 34 weeks? Why not? Because it's just sort of a below 35 weeks, um, the likelihood that a baby may need some respiratory assistance uh, to help it with transition is, is probably statistically getting high enough where. Um, they're going to probably end up having to go to the NICU. So to do to those at home. Mm -hmm. uh, now, here's the, here's the dilemma. If someone, say, has a, bre a vertex breech twins and they go into labor at 34 and a half weeks, if they went to the hospital, they're going to get sectioned. And their babies are for sure going to be in NICU. And, yeah, they'll be in NICU for quite a while. Yeah. If they do it at home, the babies probably will end up having to go to the NICU, generally not by ambulance, but generally by car seat because – but but at least the woman will get her vaginal delivery. So what I was going to say before you asked me the, that last question was the reason I'm doing it at twins at home is simply because the, there's so few options for women in the hospital setting. We're going to get to that. One of the things I'm talking about today is, is um, the, um, how America is doing so badly in outcomes uh, compared to other Western countries. Right. Like, uh, there was a new ar article that just came out and I'm going to go over that too. So, right. Anyway, um, I'm able to do, uh, Ellen, I'm able to do all these th things that you can do in a the hospital. There's really nothing different other than a, a C-section, which right. I can't do. 
So one of the things before the laws changed here in California a few years ago, I worked with midwives who delivered twins here. <clears throat> and also, you know, we didn't have that 37 week rule uh, law. So we would just make the decision of whether or not that particular baby or babies were big enough. Um, that's kind of how I learned if they were under six pounds. Um, that was something that normally they would be transferred out. I don't know that that would necessarily be how I would make that decision, but it was left up to the midwife's discretion. If a baby was coming at 36 weeks, if the baby was big enough and they felt like yeah. this was um, a situation that was safe, then we would be able to make that, that decision. Yeah. Let the woman have the home birth and then assess the baby. Cause those babies are generally not going to need like intubation or that sort of uh, tension. Right. 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 I mean, look at, I mean, you talk, you want to talk, we want to go back in time when I was a resident and we rotated through LA County, USC back in like 1980, 81. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, we had a lot of women that came in with no prenatal care. I mean, they, they, they were basically coming across the border. They're having their babies at LA County hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had no prenatal care. We didn't know how far along they were. They were in labor. We did an ultrasound on them. The estimated fetal weight was over 2000 grams which is under five pounds, mm -hmm. we pitted them out. And those babies almost always did fine. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe it's, maybe they were stressed out. We had no way of knowing, but that was because we had to move things along in the county because mm -hmm. <laughs> we had so many people in labor all the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, the, everything has gotten, like, I, like the whole theme of last week's podcast was complicating the simple. Everything has gotten yeah. more complicated then, and every time you add a layer of administration or a layer of academicians, it makes it more complicated. Yeah. Okay. Um, another thing interesting, I, I actually read an article on chemtrails mm -hmm. this week, mm -hmm. and I finally believe that they're actually real. Oh, you didn't believe No, mm -hmm. I didn't. Hmm. But now I do. Oh, okay. Okay. So... Do you want to say more about what... No, I just, I, just, <laughs> I just don't understand how they think that they're going to... Um, change the global temperature or seed the atmosphere to do certain things by having a little streaks that go across the sky in some little small, small part. I don't even know who's doing it actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it the U S military? Is it uh, the CIA? Is it who's doing it? Oh, I don't, I don't know enough about them, Yeah. but anyway, I read an article about it mm -hmm. and I saw that they were interviewing somebody from the CIA and it's, and he said they're real. Mm -hmm. So of course I believe everything the CIA tells me. <laughs> All right, never mind. Um, Can we talk about this for a sec? Okay, I was going. Yeah, we got it. All right. Um, so one of our listeners, I can't remember who it was, um, tagged at me in a post about the breach study. What's the name of that study? The term breach trial. Term breach trial, which we have talked about on the podcast. Ad nauseum. <laughs> many, many times. <laughs> But I thought we could just talk about it for a second. I never wear t-shirts, but I thought I would wear a t-shirt today. This one says reteach breach. Looks really good on you. <laughs> Better than me. I don't know. But um, uh, so from my perspective, again, uh, breach is a variation of normal. And the issue at this point is not that breach is not safe. It is that we don't have skilled practitioners in case there's an issue. So the way that I like to think about it is, when you have a head down baby, sometimes you can get a shoulder dystocia and that needs particular maneuvers to help to be able to rotate that baby to help them deliver. So when you have a booty first baby, a breech baby, 
Um, it's the same thing. Most of the time, hands off, baby will be able to deliver on its own. There are certain things that you can note, um, which we've talked about, um, that will tell you if the baby is not doing its rotation properly and you may have to go in and do those maneuvers. Mm -hmm. And that is a skill that is learned. And that's one of Dr. Fishbein's, Dr. Stu's, um, missions is to reteach breach. Um, if you can. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the term breach trial was, was not the, was not the, um, the totally deciding factor. There had been articles coming out before that, that had leaned towards cesarean section, not very well done articles actually. And then the, the sort of the term breach trial was the nail in the coffin. Yeah. And it was sort of what, 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 what it's, what it was confirmation bias. It was what, academicians where people were looking for a reason not to have to do breach delivery. Don't know why they just were looking for a reason. And so there was, this article came out, they immediately adopted it. All right. If an article had come out at the same time saying that breach delivery vaginally was, was reasonable and great, they would have ignored it. Mm-hmm. And there's right. a great documentary that um, Dr. Elliot Berlin made called heads up. The disappearing art of breach delivery. Yeah, which has a lot of great information. It goes over the study and how things change and all of that. So if you want to know more, I would go there. Do you know where in your podcast at all they could go to listen to a previous? Um, I'm not sure which one they they'd have to go through them and you, look at the yeah, titles. But there are definitely. But they can also. I also on my uh, birthing instincts webpage at the very top are banners of articles that I published. One of them is my home breach article, and in there. There's a really nice review of the literature. So there you go. So you can go there. And then there's like 67 references in my article that, so you could go down and you could find references for people that want to like do dig deeper. They could find other articles and, um, and research it from that. Okay, great. Okay. That's it. Um, so, um, I, ha- I, I saw this on Twitter. Uh huh. All right. I follow certain people on Twitter, and one of them is a woman named Candace Owens. And some people may know who she is. Other people may not. She's got like a million followers. And so um, she's pregnant. She's in her eighth or ninth month of pregnancy. And this has nothing to do with her politics or anything like that. It has to do with what she said, which I, I love it. She said, this is a tweet she put. I'm allowed to fly directly next to perfect strangers on a packed plane with no social distancing between strangers. And during that flight, we can all take our masks off, eat and drink. But my husband is not allowed to attend any of my prenatal appointments with me because science. <laughs> so go, I so I so love that. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. because she's got like a million followers. So when when she says something like that, then you know people will actually pay attention to it, which is exactly what our movement needs. All right, the idea that I'm doing scans on twenty week scans for people because. And they have to pay out of pocket for me because the husband or the children aren't allowed to go see their other 20 weeks, you know, see their baby inside. And that husband, that, I think I responded to her something about when did fathers become non-essential personnel was my mm-hmm. comment to her, which you've heard me say before. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that that was pretty, pretty cool. Um, and then Becky, who's listening, I think on, on Instagram, sent me this this morning. She said, my baby's breach. I'm 29 weeks, their third baby. Another topic I would love to hear with. Would be do babies typically flip head down, and when would you do an ECV? Well, we've discussed this actually before on the podcast too. Um, an ECV is usually done around thirty-seven weeks, and the reason it's done that way is because the babies generally mature 
And there's, if there's, an issue. there's a higher fluid level, then it will be at 38 or 39 weeks ratio to the baby. And if something were to go wrong and you had to deliver the baby like emergently, you wouldn't be delivering a premature baby. But 96% to 97% of babies will turn head down. And if your other two babies, uh, Becky, were head down, then this baby will likely be head down too. By term. So we would say by 36, 37 weeks, right? And she says, I'm planning a home birth with my midwife and said she'll call in support for a breech birth if he decides to stay that way. So that's great. Do you know where Becky is? I don't. Where are you, Becky? Becky, if you're still listening, text, we want us, to know. text us where you are. What support means yeah. for your midwife. Yep. Um, and then she actually also asked about uh, a COVID vaccine in pregnancy and its safety. And I'm going to be doing more research. I told her this morning that I actually do not know enough. I mean, I'd be skeptical. I'm naturally skeptical, but I don't want to be uh, just bla blathering from the mouth about this vaccine yet. So I'm going to be doing COVID? the COVID vaccine mm -hmm. in pregnant women and mm -hmm. whether or not, I mean, I think most pregnant women are going to say, no, I wouldn't put it in me. Well, you would say a general term about vaccines because they haven't been tested in pregnant women. Correct. It hasn't been proven And these really haven't been that, that well tested in none. <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> been proven safe for anyone yet. All right. Yeah. All right, so let's skip this one because I don't know if I'll talk. By the way, that. I have a little, I have a little uh, irritation this week that I almost did a really long post about, and then I decided I wasn't going to well, do it. Let's talk about that. Anti, the term anti-vaxer really oh. gets me. Then we'll talk about this one first. I, you know, it's like it's so inflammatory. Yeah, say, say pejorative bias. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. pejorative bias. Yeah, it's. It's inflammatory just because someone wants to do a uh, delayed schedule or believes in freedom of choice or any of that stuff does not mean that across the board we're anti-vaxxers. Did you bring that up because you just happened to catch this? No. That's so funny. <laughs> like this. I thought maybe you had a subliminal view of this. <laughs> I looked through the paper. Of this headline. No. I just, All right. It so this, is, this guy's a friend of mine. Who is it? Uh, Paul Thomas. He wrote, uh, he co-authored the vaccine-friendly plan with my friend Jennifer Margulis. You know who he is? Uh -huh. He's a pediatrician in Oregon. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard about this. Yep. Prominent anti-vaccine pediatrician now. Lost, okay. Lost because he advises people about the risks of vaccine and suggests that maybe autism is something they need to think about and other things about it. And again, every time you start to cherry pick data, you you skew your story. So you, you know, remember we talked last week about gunny sacking, where you take little irritations and make them into a big blowout. And sort of this is what happens when you want to get somebody, they'll get you. All right. Well, he had his license suspended by the Oregon Medical Board. Now, this is a guy with like 11,000 patients or some crazy number of patients. He's written books classically, just like my friend Brad Boots Taylor. All right who does things a little differently, who's written a book, who's got a great following, who may every now and then have a bad outcome. Or, you know, when you have 11,000 patients and you've been practicing for 20 or 30 years, you're going to have some adverse events happen that maybe you didn't give somebody a vaccine and then that kid suffered from it or got hospitalized. Like there's one mention here about how he didn't vaccinate people with rota vaccine, rotavirus vaccine for some things. And some of those kids ended up in the hospital. Yeah, they did. Okay. But there were probably many pediatricians who vaccinated their kids, who had kids in their practice, who ended up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. 
even though they got the vaccine, but that's not, you know, it's not mentioned here. So anyway, I just went through it this morning and I highlighted stuff, but I, it's funny that you brought up the word anti-vaccine because it's me. The, the, the title is prominent anti-vaccine pediatrician, Dr. Paul Thomas. And when they say anti-vaccine, it's meant to be pejorative. It's meant to just uh, imply um, a negative. That's what the whole point is. That's what pejorative means. Yeah. Imply a negative. And it reminds me of when um, there was all the negative press, because lack of a better word for right now, when they were trying to discredit midwives. You know, they put out all of these articles about how midwives were dirty and how we, you know, they make these cartoon caricatures of, of what we looked like um, to yeah, discredit and, and, us. And now if, if it's all, it's all one side, if you put out something in the, in the Twitterverse or in Facebook and you have a pejorative bias, but it's not the Facebook's pejorative bias, they'll label it as, as misinformation or they'll label this as, you know, Which false. Which is dangerous, you guys. This yeah. is very, very dangerous. Um, that, you know, we talk about science and following science when, when only one side of science is being listened to and, um, we're not able to question things, um, from a different perspective. That's a very, very slippery slope. Right. So what happened was there was a, at least, at least one complaint. Oh, I, it's fine. Yeah. I think, I think we still have the video. So okay. Um, we lost our video here, but uh, if, yeah, Hannah or anybody, Eric, uh, if you're still seeing us, just send me a message and let me know you're still seeing us. Um, so anyway, there was an initial initial complaint written to the medical board, and I and I have to personally make comments about um, complaints to the medical board. I think we talked about this on a podcast maybe a few months ago, mm -hmm. where I had to go and be interviewed by the medical board. I was ambushed by the medical board and its experts because some anonymous person wrote in a, a letter about an anonymous patient on an anonymous date. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And they still had to investigate it. So when, just because something's being investigated or there's a complaint, doesn't mean anything. But when you see it in an article that there's the word complaint about a physician, it implies wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. It just does. Right. Okay. Anyway, I'm not saying that, that this is le legitimate or not legitimate. I'm just trying to put the other side of the story out there. Um, the medical board also reviewed troubling new allegations that Thomas appeared to push parents not to accept vaccines, including the rotavirus vaccine, and that several of his unvaccinated patients were hospitalized after not getting the vaccine. And I wrote myself a note there that said, compared to what? Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Several of his unvaccinated patients. Well, several means what? Three or more? Right. Okay. So he has 11,000 people in his practice, I think. Or maybe that. Maybe I got that number right. It's at least double digits. And um, he's had several. All right. Unvaccinated patients. Now, did the parents choose to be unvaccinated? Well, it says that it, they implied skewed uh, consent there. Who You know, I don't, I don't know him, so... Yeah, well, he appeared to push that. Well, mm -hmm. so what does that mean? That he actually gave them choices? Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're implying skewed consent, right. which is don't take it. Did they mm -hmm. actually interview? They, did they actually record him giving consent? Mm -hmm. Or do they just go to the parents of people whose kids got hospitalized and you know who are aggravated or angry? And they say, yeah, yeah, he told us we didn't need a vaccine. Mm -hmm. You know, and quite frankly, you know, I'm not sure about the injury record of people who get rotavirus vaccine, but... But that's not that, that's something that there are reported cases of people getting a vaccine for rotavirus, just like any other virus. 
who develop local reactions or or autoimmune problems or fever or whatever. There's so, risk to both yes. sides. So he probably mm-hmm. tells them that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then it included a 10-month, 10-month-old twins who were, quote, suffering from dehydration and serum electrolyte abnormalities and required five days of hospitalization, according to the medical board. Okay. Okay, well, that's what happens when you get rotavirus. You have dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. All right, so I'm not sure why that's even mentioned other than to just make it seem worse. Mm-hmm. And then again, I, they're, and they're, you know, I want to know who they're comparing it to. What are the stats of the other pediatricians in in, in Oregon? Mm-hmm. And, and again, so they're, you know, they don't like him because of the positions that he takes. Right. And he's very outspoken about it. If he took these positions and didn't write a book about it or didn't, didn't appear in, um, he's a, he's a leading figure in the, in the film Vaxxed, right? I don't know you've seen it, mm-hmm. right? Most of you guys have probably seen Vaxxed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, then it said, I wrote down here, um, possibly even more alarming, there raises the question of whether doctors are withholding vaccines that parents wanted or assumed their children were getting. Okay. All right. Well, it raises the question. All right. So great. So that raises the question, but this is an article about their suspension. I mean, if you're going to suspend someone's license, it shouldn't be that you have questions. It should be that you have proof. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't you think? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to say they're already biased against the guy. I know this. Okay. It's funny, this is the second week in a row now we're talking about them going after what I know to be a dedicated, hardworking, good physician. And they must have known. Different. They must have known that they were at risk for this. You know that you're at risk yeah. for that. And you keep practicing for as long as you can practice because it's what you believe in or the, you don't. The board also took issue with his alleged decision to study his patient's immune response to the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. In doing so, he ordered antibody tests of 905 patients and the order suggests the test ordered between 2002 and 2015 were unnecessary. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if he was doing a study without like human study, human like, research or without informed consent of the parents and just drawing blood and not telling the parents what it's for, that's, that's, that's wrong. But if he's telling the parents, listen, I'm doing a study and he has them sign a form, then if the parents want to have to be part of the study, then why is it unnecessary? And what were the findings? Of course, it doesn't say that, but the findings were here. Just curious. Um, we should ask him. Uh, well, it says here, more troubling were the findings he made and apparently did not act on. 122 of his patients did not have sufficient antibodies, including 90 of the patients who had not had a second vaccine that is part of the standard vaccination schedule. And the board says, knowingly leaving these children inadequately protected against the preventable, potentially debilitating illness constitutes 90 acts of gross negligence. Okay, so, all right, but if he hadn't done these tests, which they didn't want him to do, he would not have known that there were 90 people. So first, they don't want you doing the study, but then if you did the study, now you found 90 people who didn't have it. Maybe he gave the parents information and maybe the parents just decided, well, I don't want my kid to have a second booster shot. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. You know, when they're out to get you, I wrote a note myself, when they're out to get you, they will. Yep. So, and then of course the last sentence in the article, which is a typical sentence that they always put, is Dr. Thomas did not respond to requests for comment. And I wrote, what did I write? No shit. No shit. Okay. <laughs> right. You can't, you know, it's they make it sound like that, that when you're guilty because you did not respond to requests for comments. 
you're not allowed to respond to requests for hearing. Your lawyer tells you not to speak to anybody. You you know, so because it gets used against you, manipulated, and you know. That right. I mean, I'm sure that Paul has a lot to say about it. All right, and it probably will come out in time. Mm-hmm. But the idea that they needed to emergently suspend his license because they considered him a danger after he's been doing this for years and and probably has a significant number of the patients that love him. And then I, you know, I, I copied one set of comments here because I thought that you know sometimes most interesting part of any article that you read is going and reading what the armchair quarterbacks at home like to write afterwards, you know, the comments section. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so somebody named Smedley, I love the names that people and um, said, wait until the vaccinations that do not prevent infection of COVID and quote, may unquote, only reduce the severity of the symptoms as minor as a cough or headache, a side effect start kicking in. Not sure how anyone can think mass vaccinations by government belonging to world bodies could be any good. All right. And then somebody named Scrappy Mutt <laughs> replies, I've heard it's all a secret trap between aliens, Bigfoot and Hillary Clinton that turns anyone who gets the vaccine transgender. <laughs> so, you know, it's a sad, it's, it's a tragic story. It bothers me that, uh, you know, uh, another, another good doctor uh, doesn't follow the, um, I guess, the mainstream way of doing things and therefore is now being censored or in, a, in, a, in a brutal way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. It's very sad. Right. You're welcome, uh, Jacqueline. Jacqueline says, thanks so much for doing these each week. I'm learning so much as an aspiring midwife. We're so glad that it makes a difference. So I wanted to talk about something real fast. Um, I put um, something on my stories. It's from Orgasmic Birth. It's a little video if you want to look at it. And it shows a woman on hands and knees, one with her her, um, knees together and her feet out, and one with her knees out, as they would have you do um, in the lithotomy position for a delivery in the hospital. And it shows that the outlet actually opens um, more when your knees are together and your feet are out. So um, Dr. Stu and I talked about it. I showed him the video and we talked about it for a second before going on. And I told the mama she wants to go for a VBAC um, and had a question for me. But what did you think when you when you saw that little video? Yeah, it was it was impressive. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm assuming that the little white dots are you know they're showing the the gluteal gluteus is going out, which I'm assuming is reflective of what's happening with the bones. Well, the too. sits bones, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was actually interesting when you when you when you went sort of like frog legged. That was worse. When your knees were back open. Yeah, when her knees went out, but her feet were together. Right. But when her knees stayed together and her feet went out, Mm -hmm. which is kind of an awkward position, I think. It is awkward. Then that opened it up more. Right. It was sort of. So. Why didn't why didn't why have why have I never seen this before? That's what I want to know. I don't know. I learned it in a in a PT um, workshop a few years ago um, by Dr. Grace, by the way. Um, So the recommendation would be if you are on your back. When you pull your knees back, you don't want them to be open. You want them to just go straight towards kind of your shoulders or your ears this way, parallel. Yeah. And the other thing that that helps is... Which is so contrary to everything I've done for so many years. Yeah, I know. So the other thing is, is that the perineum, when the knees are back this way, then this is not as tight. So that will help with tearing as well. 
So um, the mom asked, what should she do if the doctor won't let her do that? <laughs> and I, so I told her I would answer hire today. A hire a midwife. Hire a midwife. Yeah. Um, have a conversation with your provider at a prenatal before you're in labor. Where can they get this video? It's on or, or, orgasmic birth. It's, can you link it to your Instagram page or something like that? Um, I'll put it on my stories again, but I just went and looked. It's like one of their second things. But your stories disappear. They do. So can you put it on an Instagram post? The link? I can. Sure. Yeah. Put it on so then Instagram put it on an Instagram post. post. Um, so talk to your provider before you're in labor. Tell them that your preference is to be able to be in any position that feels right for you. And then find a practitioner that's going to support your desires. So that would be my recommendation. Which is a great segue. Into, Again. Into my topic of the day, which we're getting into kind of late already. That's okay. Uh, because we're just chatting away you. today. Yep. Well, you have two you have two weeks worth of chatting to get in. Okay. So um, there's a study that came out, uh, and the title of the study is Maternal Mortality and Maternity Care in the United States Compared to 10 Other Developed Countries. And the uh, findings are actually quite depressing. For those of us living living in America, mm -hmm. all right. So the goals were to compare maternal mortality rates in the U.S. with ten other high income countries, and identify differences in maternal care workforces, postpartum care access, and paid maternity leave policies. And the analysis of the latest data from the Center for Disease Control, which again, every time I bring up the Center for Disease Control, I have to tell you that you know some of the stuff they put out. We believe some of the stuff we don't believe. You have to use your own filter on anything that comes out from the CDC or the WHO. Um, also, a British organization called the Organization for Economic Cooperative and Development. You know how I know it's British? Because it says British? Nope. Oh, because oh, they spell it they different. <laughs> yeah, they spell organization different. <laughs> and regular literature. And the key findings were this, all right? The U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed countries. This has been forever. OBGYNs are overrepresented in this maternity care workforce relative to midwives. And there is an overall shortage of maternity care providers, both OBs and midwives, relative to births. In most other countries, midwives outnumber OBGYNs by several fold, and primary care plays a central role in the health system. Although a large share of its maternal deaths occur post-birth, the U.S. is the only country not to guarantee access to provider home visits or paid parental leave in the postpartum period. And they conclude that the U.S. has a relative undersupply of maternity care providers, especially midwives, and lacks comprehensive postpartum support. Okay? Mm -hmm. So as background, they say increasing in the United States since the year 2000 uh, are preventable maternal deaths. All right? So it's been rising since 2000. A U.S. policymaker and... As U.S. policymakers and healthcare delivery system leaders seek ways to reverse this trend, countries that have achieved lower maternal mortality rates may offer possible solutions. Okay, so here's what here's what I love. Okay, as U.S. policymakers and healthcare delivery system leaders, right? Who's been making the decisions to get us here in the last twenty years? Men. Well, <laughs> U.S. policymakers and healthcare delivery system leaders. Mm -hmm. So isn't that sort of like asking the fox to guard the hen house? Mm. Makes me so aggravated. I even put an arg by that. <laughs> okay. Because they're saying that the same people who led you to this place, this happens in Washington all the time, Sacramento too. 
they'll 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 destroy something and then they and then and there'll be a crisis and then they'll appoint them same people that destroyed it to try to fix it. And that's what they're they're saying that here too. U.S. policymakers and healthcare delivery system leaders are the ones that put us in a position that we're in now, where in the United States we're doing crappy and we have shit ratios between midwives and we don't have a a smooth transition system. We don't have any of that stuff. And they're going to put it in those people's hands. Okay. So um, here's some interesting data. In 2018, there were 17 maternal deaths for every 100,000 live births in the United States. So I calculated it out. That's one in 5,882. Okay. Or 0.17%. That's a small number, but it's still whatever. A ratio more than double that of most other high income countries. The maternity mortality ratio was three per 100,000 or fewer in the Netherlands, Norway, and New Zealand. So three per 100,000 is one in 33,000. So that's six times smaller in those countries than here. Now, once again, to be factual, six times a smaller number or six times a, a, a small number is still a small number. But one in 5,882 is certainly more significant than one in 33,333. Okay. So what are they doing differently? All right. Well, let's see. A relatively large share, up to about 52% of, of, post, of, of maternal deaths occur or pregnancy-related deaths occur postpartum. Yes. Right. When they go home. Um, 52% occur after delivery. 19% of all maternal deaths occur between one and six days postpartum. 21% of all maternal deaths are between one and six weeks postpartum. And 12% of maternal, all maternal deaths takes place during the remaining portion of the year. Also known as late maternal deaths. How do they, <clears throat> I wonder how they can uh, connect it to the postpartum when it's that distant from the birth. That's interesting. It probably has something to do with the reproductive system or something like hmm. that that's related to birth. Mm -hmm. They didn't get into that detail. They yeah, do, it's interesting. They do, they do describe, actually... Um, you know, how they a pregnancy-related death is death during pregnancy or within one year at the end of pregnancy mm -hmm. from a pregnancy complication, a chain of events initiated by pregnancy, or the aggravation of an unrelated condition by the physiologic effect of pregnancy. So I suppose somebody could die from, um, you know, severe, they have renal disease, and the pregnancy makes it much worse. Mm -hmm. And then six months later, they die. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would be considered, even though they died of renal failure, that would be considered a pregnancy-related death because oh, the pregnancy okay. worsened it. Okay. Or lupus. Somebody had severe lupus and ended up dying from that, which is rare, but that happens. Okay. In the first week postpartum, severe bleeding, high blood pressure, and infection are the most common yeah. things that happen. Yeah. <clears throat> so here's an important paragraph, and I just want to read it. Uh, midwives in many countries are key care providers trained to provide a wide range of services. Duh. Okay. Among these are helping to manage a normal pregnancy, assisting with childbirth, and providing care during the postpartum period, placing a priority on natural reproduction processes and relationship building. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, every day. I mean, this is, but this is good because it's, yeah. it's another article that'll be ignored by, <laughs> wait, they'll be ignored by, uh, let's see, it'll be ignored by U.S. policymakers and healthcare delivery system We're talking leaders. to you. Okay. Placing a priority on natural reproduction, pro oh, relationship. midwives can also help address the social and personal needs of the mother, baby, and family. OBGYNs, meanwhile, are physicians trained to identify and intervene in abnormal conditions. This sounds like I said this, doesn't it? 
They come up before, during, and after pregnancy. They typically provide care in hospital-based settings. Midwifery-led care models have been shown to provide care that is comparable to, and sometimes even better than, that provided by OBGYN. I, I'd second that. For normal birth. Now, here's interesting. The, the U.S. and Canada have the lowest overall supply of midwives and OBGYNs, 12 and 15 providers per 1,000 live births, respectively. All other countries have a supply that is between two and six times greater. Okay. Um, in the U.S. and Canada, the OBGYNs outnumber midwives. The American College of Nurse Midwives claims that the U.S. maternity workforce is upside down relative to patient needs, noting that the majority of births are low risk and could be managed by midwives, family practitioners, or general practitioners. For a lot less. In several countries, including Canada, France, and New Zealand, primary care physicians also play a large role. In most, that's not OBs, that's just family practitioners. Mm -hmm. In most other countries, however, midwives greatly outnumber OBGYNs. For example, midwives provide most prenatal care and deliveries in the UK and the Netherlands, countries considered to have among the strongest primary care systems in Europe. Dutch midwives also deliver home births, which represent 13% of the births in the Netherlands, the highest rate of any developed country. 13. Thir 13%. <laughs> yeah, when it used to be, uh, what, 99 or 100%. 100 years yeah. ago, right. But so, still, just think what the how things would change in the United States if we could get 3% or 4% or 5% of people delivering outside of the hospital. So we talked with, about with midwives, this. We them. talked about this when we did our fundraiser for the sanctuary with Ricky Lake and all of that back in 2007 or 8. So, you know, this, it hasn't really changed that much. I mean, luckily the movie, Ricky Lake's movie has increased, um, awareness, awareness, but you know, the system itself has really not changed. But as you were reading this, what came to my mind that I thought is so interesting to talk about in these day and times, this is why it's so good to have you these, <laughs> these day and times is that we, this birth is the fundamental beginning of all human beings. Probably one of the most important things that can happen is a woman being pregnant and a new baby entering the world. Could we agree on that? Say it again because I was really <laughs> Birth is I'm probably so fundamentally one of the most important things as human beings. A woman being pregnant and a new baby entering the world. Could we agree on that? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know we agree on that. Okay. Yes. So it is it is probably one of the it is probably the one of, it is the most important thing. right right so we have i just mentioned for me personally 12 years i've been talking about these exact same statistics and that things need to be changed through uh government policies um hospital policies insurance all of it it's all not supporting the change however we get a virus and immediately the whole system shuts down mm -hmm. in order to impact this. Why? Maybe? Possibly? Because there's money mm -hmm. involved? Power. Power. Uh, you know, from the very first A, a day. way of changing the system. <laughs> this was this this coronavirus thing is just the timing and everything. You know, there's so many conspiracies out there, but even so, just the way it was used to change human behavior and to change the systems in favoring, you know, I mean, look what's going on in my county. Look what's going on in our county. All right. I mean, big box stores, Amazon, Walmart, they're, they're all open. 
Okay. All the businesses around here. We all know. Shut down. We all know that part. I just think it's so interesting if we think about the comparison that we were able to immediately yep. act and impact an entire culture and somehow, as we just said, maybe someone doesn't agree that birth is probably the most important human thing that can happen. We can't seem to get it together. And so that is infuriating to me. It's infuriating because we can do it and we're not. We're not doing it. We're we're emphasizing other things. Not only are even we not, the not only are we not it. doing it, but the minute that somebody comes out with a with a new way of doing it, they're pounded back in again. It's the old Japanese proverb. What, what are we going to do about it? What that? do you do if the nail that What do you do with the nail that stands out? You pound it back in again. Right. What are we going to do about it? Uh, well, we just have to keep trucking along, I guess. Oh, you guys, it's so hard. Okay. Wait, wait. Let me finish this because we, okay, and then we, get, to, we get a lot of comments here. So I know. So you guys are involved. What can, today. What can change? Okay. Access to home visits after delivery varies in the U.S., but is guaranteed in other countries. So we should have insurance companies and postpartum care. Yeah, we should have it, and they they in suggest home. at least four postpartum visits. The the way it works now is generally there's one. Mm-hmm. Uh, at six weeks, we'll see you at six weeks. It's, yeah, and, right. and then how. 12, 24% or something was before six weeks? 30%. Yeah. Right. Uh, The U.S. is the only high-income country that does not guarantee paid leave to mothers after childbirth. That should be something we deal about, especially in the husbands, too. If the husbands are home, maybe we'll catch things sooner because, obviously, even a a visit by a midwife on day one or two postpartum and then a week or so later, you've got five days in between where there's nobody there. So Mm -hmm. it's like, and if the mother's home alone, right. Um. In most countries, maternity care is well integrated with other primary care. We don't have that here in our country. So anyway, that's that's the basis of it. Oh, and then it says, um, oh, here, I want to get you. Yeah, the World Health Organization recommends at least four health contacts in the first six weeks. Yet women typically have a single visit. Um, huge racial disparities. Yes. But it's really interesting what the racial disparities in the United, in the United States are bad. But actually, you know, the death rate for, I mean, the, um, the number of deaths per 100,000 births for black non-Hispanic women is 37 per 100,000. When overall, I think it was 17 per 100,000 was the average. Remember that number I gave early? 17 per 100,000. Yeah, but they shouldn't be combining black and Hispanic. They're not. Black oh, non-Hispanic. Non-Hispanic, sorry. Right. Mm-hmm. It was more than two times higher than that for white mothers, which was only 14.7 per 100,000. But what's interesting Hispanic women have the lowest rate at 11.8. Mm-hmm. Why is that? More family, probably. Maybe. Mm-hmm. More family support. Or genetic. Maybe something genetic, too. Mm-hmm. Could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these disparities are not unique to the United States, however. In the UK, which has universal health coverage, maternal deaths were five times more common among black women. Yeah. Pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, again, they come back to the thing is, in the U.S., where maternal health outcomes are poor relative to many other parts of the world, policymakers and delivery system leaders can examine international models of maternity care to inform strategies. Yeah, but who's but who is it? Who's advising these people? All right, you know, who is advising the policymakers and the delivery system leaders? Okay, academicians are the perpetrators of the status quo. So we're going to go to the academicians for advice, but that's what they do. Those who actually are providing the services, we don't have time. You know, or we're never asked. Yeah, no one's right? asking me. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not saying anything. You know, people should ask me anything. Okay. I really am not. But I. But but who better 
equipped to answer questions from a committee about home birthing, hospital birthing, transition, the different than somebody who's actually still doing it and has done both. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, I'm the Brad Boots Taylor and Paul Thomas of, you know, of Southern out. California. Yeah, well, you know that. I'm, yeah, but I'm ready for that because, I know. right, you know, that. you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a trailer like you and go, go on a road trip. Wow, you guys, you have so many good questions, but we're running out of time. So Let's we, do a couple. We may have to write them down. Well, I had a, um, go for it. You have one? Well, I'm just looking at, com- they're mostly comments. Oh, no, I have some questions. Go ahead. Okay, so with going back to the question about your pelvis being open, I've heard it can minimize space during the end of dilation. So only to um, only to recommend this after complete dilation. Thoughts? My main thoughts about this is follow a woman's instinct. We really shouldn't be checking for dilation that frequently, anyways. Um, if a woman uh, is going to find the position that works for her to dilate, if you're having a dysfunctional labor pattern. Um, and your, and dilation is not happening, then you might want to intervene. But other than that, I think you should be following the mom's instincts. I was specifically talking about what is done in the hospital most often in terms of position. Right. Just comments still? Yeah. Well, Shoshana says, um, uh, she says, and GA is the worst. I'm not, what is GA? Georgia. Is that what you is that, is that the abbreviation for Georgia? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I should know that. George is in the news every <laughs> every every day right yeah. now. Um, she says, I'm a CNM and I can't even tell you how many people I have sent back to their providers and they still aren't being cared for correctly. Who puts someone on nifedipine for postpartum preeclampsia and doesn't have them monitor their blood pressure at home? Crazy. Yep. That's crazy. Right. Her license is limited here. So without a physician, I can't provide full care for these families. Yeah. Right. She's under the supervision of yeah, yeah, yeah. limited in what you can do and you know. Uh, what can be done and you can't provide it. It's very frustrating. Well, your state is messed up in a lot of ways right now. So <laughs> we'll just, we'll leave it at that. You know, I don't know what to do about these things. It, it, Bliss is right. I mean, there, really, there's no bigger crisis that could be dealt with relatively easily. And, um, and it's certainly a lot less expensive and a lot less life-changing than the coronavirus pandemic. We could, we could change the maternity care system. It wouldn't be that hard to do. But again, there's great economic forces for the status quo. And then you're going to ask the same people who are benefiting from the status quo to try to make changes in the system that's not going to benefit them. And they're not going to want to do that unless they can find a way to control midwives and make money off of midwives. Right. So the, the thing that's coming to my brain right now is peace on earth begins with gentle birth. And I believe that when women are in their power and they know what they're capable of, they can be better providers for their community, for their children, for their family at large. And um, I don't think that there's anything more important. And this is just talking about deaths. You know, we're not just talking about surviving, although that is very, very important. We're also talking about like that our society and our culture is is really screwed up. Well, and and, so. and it is screwed up. And, and Shoshana also mentioned something about having debates with people because they're quoting the science and right now, and, and science is as corrupt right now as any as the media, as academia, as everything else. It, it, it it's not about the science because there's science is a continuing exploration for different different ideas. And what's happening with science now is that science that supports the trend that people want, that the powers that be want to have 
is science and anything else, even though they're scientists saying other things like hydroxychloroquine or like end the lockdown or like any other the thing or like what I'm saying or whatever, that's not science. Okay. So the, it's corrupted. And unfortunately, everything that gets touched by politics or by money or whatever eventually gets corrupted. And the, and the truth is, is that some science is, is going to be greater than other science because the people who have science or want to investigate things that isn't trendy are not going to get the funding to do it. Yeah. And the funding is only going to go to people who think that the way that the, the powers that be want them to think. So anyway, I think we just uh, ended your video, right? So oh. be, be for something and against nothing is what uh, my philosophy is. So try not to get involved in debates. They don't really make that big of a difference. Do good work every day. Do what you know is true for you and for and for what your clients are needing from you or from your community or your family. We can only do so much. Um, so that would be how I would okay. well, end I, this podcast. Just before we end the podcast, I'd like to just say that I, I got interviewed by Dr. Suzanne on the Wellness for Life podcast, which will be uh, debuting on Christmas Day. So you can look up the Wellness for Life podcast with Dr. Suzanne. And I'm, I'm doing a, I did a 20 minute, she only does 20 minute podcasts. So I had talked really fast. <laughs> I feel like we talked really fast. Because <laughs> I had a lot too. to say. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, this has been uh, podcast number 192. And I, like Bliss, I'm so grateful that you you bothered to spend the time with us. Really great. Because we know how much time is limited and how many choices you have to do with your time. So those of you that caught us live, we're really, really grateful. And we love the feedback that you send us during the podcast. Yeah, I'm going to look at your questions and write them down and I will address them next week. So join us next week. So find me at birthinginstincts.com. Find Bliss at birthingblissmidwifery.com. On Instagram. <laughs> you oh. do that every week. You have to write it down. Birthing, Birthing Bliss. I have it down. Dot com is my yeah, website. There we go. I have it right here. And then Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. And then I just started a new one called The Spirit of Midwifery, which is all about some of the stuff I was talking about today. More more the heart and soul and spirit of midwifery rather than the science and medical part. All right. So until then, we'll see you uh, next week. Bye-bye.